Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Andrew Coyne, a Global Mail columnist, one of the country's leading political commentators, and a past guest of Hub Dialogues. I'm grateful to have him back for a third time as part of our ongoing Future of News series to discuss what he understands is occurring within the news media industry, why he's opposed to government bailouts, and if he ultimately believes there's a sustainable future for journalism in Canada. Andrew? Thanks once again for joining us at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure, Sean. I want to start with your career in journalism. You have a master's degree in economics from LSE. You're clearly inclined towards ideas and scholarship. You've thought a lot about business and finance. How did you end up with a career in journalism? Uh, Well, it was the career I was doing while I was trying to figure out what else I was going to do. Uh, I think that's probably true of a lot of people. Uh, But I, I must have been drawn to it pretty early on. When I started at University of Manitoba and I started working for the student paper there just on a lark uh, and, you know, kept doing with that, editing the paper there. And then when I was looking for summer jobs while I was later in university, I started working for the Winnipeg Sun. It was, uh, was then a, a standalone independent paper. It was the last uh, newspaper in North America that I'm aware of that still used uh, typewriter and paper. So uh, if you needed to rearrange the, uh, the paragraphs in the piece, you just ripped up the paper and taped them back together again. Uh, so, uh, uh, that makes me feel old. <laughs> then the second summer I was there, they brought in computers and they had the original floppy disks that actually were floppy and you could just about fit one story on a disc. So, uh, so that's going back a few years, I guess. Um, and anyway, th- this was just something I was doing while I, as I said, while I figured out what I was going to do. And then I went off to grad school and I came back from that and I thought, okay, I really do need to get a job here. Well, I've been doing this journalism thing for now, and maybe I can get on at the Financial Post, as it then was, with my economics degree. Uh, and I started writing editorials for them, and then a column, basically, I've been doing the same thing ever since. So There are obviously different paths, but a conventional one is that journalists start as reporters and eventually graduate to having a column. As you say, you just jumped in as an editorial writer and then a columnist. What did you understand about the job of a columnist when you started? And what have you learned over the years that has come to inform how you understand your job and how you do it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I did do some reporting. I, I will say on my own defense, uh, 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 in my early days and in, in, on those summer jobs, I did sort of general assignment reporting. But, uh, but you're right. I kind of jumped in and got lucky. Uh, they, they needed somebody to write editorials, and that was pretty natural progression to, to column writing. Um, I'm not sure whether – I mean, I had good role models. I had people that I – uh, that I thought were good columnists, people like uh, Michael Kinsley, the former editor of Harper's Magazine and New Republic, and 
people like Samuel Britton, who was the um, who was the um, economics commentator for a long time for the Financial Times. Those were two people I really admired and looked up to and tried to emulate. Um, uh, and I always, I guess, or pretty early on, figured out um, your job is to um, is, is not just to sort of preach the converted and not just to yell at people who oppose you, but you you should be trying to persuade people to a point of view they don't already hold uh, as point one. And point two is, and I, I do think I learned this early on, uh, uh, is um, uh, you're, you're asking people to spend time with you um, and you'd better make it worth their while you know, one way or another because they've got so many other things they can do with their time. Uh, especially in this day and age, but really twas ever thus, you know, people don't have to read you. <laughs> and I think all of us as writers uh, need to keep that at the top of mind is, is what am I offering them that makes it worth even the three minutes it takes to, to, to read my column? And, and can I make an argument that they haven't heard before? Can I offer them some information that they weren't aware of? Can I make them laugh? Uh, can I offer them a paradox that makes them scratch their head? or can at least be agreeable company. Uh, but one way or another, you, you, you know, they don't owe you anything. And, and if you don't know that as a writer starting out, you learn it pretty soon on. You've written for different outlets over the years that presumably have somewhat different audiences. How does the audience shape the questions you take on and the form that your writing ultimately takes? Quite honestly, it, it, it doesn't enter in, into it a great deal. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out who my audience is uh, other than, you know, people who are interested in um, the debates of the day. Uh, there's a kind of a self-selection there. So I guess I start from a universe of people who would be halfway interested in this kind of subject matter. Um, and if they're, if they're in that universe, then, then it's my job to go out and get them. Uh, um, and, and it shouldn't really matter a great deal what their demographics are, or any of that kind of analysis. And that may be an old-fashioned uh, way of, of looking at that, but that's the best I can do. <laughs> the media model has been disrupted, as we'll discuss. But just staying on your work, how do you think it's influenced column writing or opinion commentary? How, in other words, Andrew, has the internet and the ubiquity of online opinion changed column writing in a particular way? I think writers and columnists are more aware, perhaps more aware than they should be. Maybe this is following on from your previous question, uh, of audience feedback. Um, and it, it can be a little, actually a little bit intimidating. You know, time was, you, you wrote your, your feisty, provocative, uh, um, uh, uh, a contrarian piece. Um, and, uh, you know, if, pe if people were upset about it, they might write a letter to the editor or two. But that was, that was all you knew about it. So you were, you were in a state of kind of blissful ignorance to some extent. Now, for good or ill, uh, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're paying too much attention to this, you can find hundreds of people online who will be extremely upset and will, will add every conceivable um, bad faith interpretation to what you've written. And I fear it's made everybody a little bit more cautious uh, uh, as a result. Uh, um, uh, obviously, you shouldn't be contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian, and you shouldn't go out of your way to offend people. Uh, but, uh, but if you've got a, a argument that's genuinely, if you re genuinely think the conventional wisdom on something is wrong, you don't have an obligation to say so, but it's certainly an opportunity because that way you're adding something to the conversation. If, if you're bringing something new, a new argument, then you're, you're being useful to your readers. And sometimes as part of that, you might want to tweak them a little bit and, and, and be a, be a, be a bit saucy. 
And I, I'd hate to see that eliminated. And I think, I think, you know, one of the things that is the death of journalism is being too high-minded about it uh, and, and having too ennobled a view of what we do for a living. You know, what we do, my old boss, Bill Thorsell, used to say, we're not in the business of selling you newspapers. We're in the business of buying your time. Uh, and this comes back to this, this thing of, you know, if, if, if you're going to get people to spend three minutes, you know, this is going to, this is a rapidly dating anecdote. But if I were ever teaching a journalism class, the, the field trip would be to go and sit on an airplane when they hand out the newspapers, as I say, if they still do. Uh, but when they did, because it was a marvelously self-humiliating process, because maybe your column was in the paper that day and you get to watch people reading the paper and they're turning the page and they're turning the page and they get to the page your column is on. And it's so exciting. And then they turn the page or even worse, they start reading and they get a couple of columns in and then they turn the page. And, and you know, as I say, if, if ever we're inclined to have uh, too highfalutin a, a view of, of, of what we do for a living, uh, you know, that's a good antidote. I mean, saying it's next day's fish wrapper is a little too cheap, but but saying that it's, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's turn more generally to the news media and its future. You've been a huge critic of what seems clear in hindsight was a dumb decision by print newspapers and magazines to put their content online for free. What do you think was behind that initial decision? What was the logic and thinking in the minds of the publishers of the day? Well, I should say, I, I'm sure I was one of them at the time. Uh, the, the, the dogma among the gurus uh, was, uh, I remember it was a Jay Rosen who said, if, if, if you're charging for the content, it means the print guys won. It meant that you weren't hip to the, the new world. And I think the publishers were, were, you know, receptive to that message because they thought they were going to sell a lot of ads, right? They're going to have this giant audience online. Uh, and, and in this new world, we were going to make a bunch of money on, on advertising. And what they didn't factor in was, uh, a that um, Google and Facebook, et cetera, were had built a better mousetrap, uh, had an advertising product that was just better than ours in terms of what it could deliver to advertisers, uh, and and b that by giving away our content for free, we were kind of conditioning people to the idea that nothing nothing uh, they didn't need to pay for anything. Uh, now, to be fair, to some extent, that has been part of newspapering, um, especially in North America for 100 years. It was always heavily subsidized by advertising. So we charged a fraction. So people have always been accustomed to not paying the full cost. So that's part of the dilemma of this new world we're in is we're trying to acclimatize the idea of paying something closer to the full shot. Uh, um, but that's good. I, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself in the argument, but you know, if you really want to see a crappy newspaper, Go back to the, look up some papers from the 1950s or the 1960s, our heyday, when we were making money hand over fist. Uh, you could write a column in those days that consisted of, you know, reader mail and uh, recipes and, you know, light anecdotes that you'd heard somewhere. And you put all that together and that was your day's work. Uh, you can't do that now. Uh, one, one of the consequences of this world where we're trying to get people to pay for, for, for newspapers and pay for magazines, et cetera, is you've got to make it worth their while. So not only do you have to buy their time uh, 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 that they spend reading you, but you also individually and corporately have to give them their money's worth. Um, and in the long run, I think that's a good thing. I think that means we get a much tighter uh, bond between the writer and the reader. Uh, you know, Samuel Johnson, I think it was, said, no man but a blockhead ever wrote but for money. 
Well, that was a that was also a statement about who was paying the shot. And when the reader's paying the shot, uh, better things happen than when somebody else is paying for the shot. When it's either advertising uh, or public funding. In what's common to both of those is that they are not creating a direct financial relationship between the writer and the reader. And for the reasons I was saying, writers should be hungry for readers. Uh, not in a that doesn't necessarily mean you have to pander to them. Uh, or, or or reach them on the basis of the lowest common denominator, you can reach them in all kinds of ways. You, you can do that if you choose, but you can also try and reach them at a, at a higher level. The Hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of The Hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your giftee to Hubform, our daily email newsletter and discussion group, complimentary access for the giftee to all our live events, and special offers on events, books, and Hub merchandise. Grab your Hub gift subscription right now at our website, www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the Join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page, Follow the instructions and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code subscribe20 at checkout. Give the gift to the hub this holiday season. You've also been a critic, of course, of government intervention or public subsidies to support the sector as it struggled in the face of market disruption. If one was being generous to proponents of public subsidies, implicit in their argument, is that there is a market failure. You know, that is to say, market forces on their own aren't producing enough journalistic content. They might add the adjective high-quality journalistic content. What do you think about that argument? Is what we're experiencing a market failure? And if not at the scale that proponents of public subsidies might argue, do you accept that there are any market failures going on, perhaps at the regional or local level or whatever? Is there anything, in other words, Andrew, that you see in the marketplace that could justify some level of government intervention? The short answer to that would be no, but let, let me let me elaborate a little bit. Uh, uh, I think there's there's good arguments for market failure and bad arguments. The bad argument that you hear most is uh, the business is in trouble, therefore that means the market must have failed. Uh, well, no, you know that's in, that's a business failure, and and it's been pretty calamitous and pretty widespread. But the fact that um, news, traditional newspaper companies have been having a hard go of it is not in itself proof of market failure. As you know better than I, Sean, you know, market failure has a very specific meaning. It means that the market is unable to deliver a product because, frankly, the, the, the chief reason is because there's no way to charge people for it. Uh, national defense is the classic example. You can't charge for national defense because I get defended whether I get paid, whether I paid or not. And so there's a huge incentive for everybody to free ride. And therefore, you're not going to get uh, nearly enough national defense uh, that, that everybody would actually want to be willing to pay for if there was a way to charge them. There was a way to exclude people who didn't pay. Well, none of that applies to newspapers, certainly. Uh, it might have uh, arguably applied in the early days of television and radio when there was no way to charge. It does not apply anymore in that regard. Uh, so so that kind of argument, the sort of naive market failure, I, I don't buy. There is an argument people make that news in particular uh, is a kind of public good, is an example of market failure. And the argument goes... Well, if a newspaper A publishes a scoop, uh, newspaper B can just match that story and and get the benefit of that scoop uh, 
Uh, and therefore, there's no incentive for newspapers to get scoops. And so that's, you know, that's closer to the mark of there being a sort of positive externality that, you know, once once the story is out there, people try to analogize it to, to research. And so there's a couple of problems with that, um, with that argument. Uh, one is just looking at actual experience. Uh, that's not actually how newspapers behave. Um, yes, they sometimes scalp a story, as we say in the business. You just cover it with, with your own version of it. But you're mostly just playing catch up and everybody knows it. Uh, there's a benefit to a newspaper in being seen as being newsy, as being seen as a, as, a, as a paper that breaks stories. That's why papers are, you know, partly it's just people, reporters have egos and want to want to, uh, want to have scoops, but also it, it, it creates an aura around a newspaper, around a news outlet if they're breaking stories. The more common, or at least as common experience, is a paper will get a big scoop and the other papers will do their best to, to Piss all over it, if you pardon my language, to say, "Oh, this, this is this is bogus. There's no story here. Uh, it's, they're just in some obsession of their own, etc." And that's human nature as well. So I just don't see a lot of evidence that that's the case. And the other thing, of course, that makes it different from from R and D is, you know, we have a broad understanding and agreement on what is science. There's some contention around the edges, but the basic idea of scientific research. Uh, um, there, there's a huge amount of consensus on the types of things and the types of procedures, uh, the subject matter, et cetera. With news, everything is 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 contentious. Everything is in is in play. What is news? What is a story? What is a legitimate news outlet? There's a reason why there's no licensing in newspapers. There's there's no you don't have to to you know get somebody to to authorize you and to to, to vouch for you. Um, you just have to hang out your shingle, and 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 the the the, the decider of it is the reader. Uh, and so, you know that that part of what makes me queasy about that 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 type of analogy is it's it's ti- it's this very tidy view of we all know what news is and the kind of news that we want to encourage. No, we don't. Uh, and the minute we start talking that way, we start getting into official news and approved news and all kinds of things that I fear we're heading towards that we really don't want to go anywhere. We, we want news to be contentious. We want it to be constantly uh, in play and constantly argued about because that's the nature of the subject matter that news, particularly political news, is concerning itself. I've asked a couple of American guests so far in the series about why, notwithstanding that the U.S. industry is going through broadly the same set of challenges, it doesn't seem to have the same political resonance as it does here in Canada. That is to say, we've not seen the same political attention and focus paid to these market disruptions and in turn the possible need for government policy to minimize them. What do you think explains that? Is it a cultural difference? Is it a function of the industry itself? How do you understand the extent to which this has really come to seize a considerable share of Canada's political debate? So part of it is in in Canada, we just generally you know, are more inclined to reach for government solutions to problems. Sometimes that's right. I mean, the America, there are cases of genuine market failure in the United States that for one reason or another, their politics will not allow them to address. So I don't mean to say that we get it wrong and they get it right all the time. But we also, I think, tend to reach for, for government solutions where there isn't really a case of market failure. So part of that is just uh, uh, cultural. The Americans have more of a tolerance, I think, in this case, rightly, for business failure. For for you know, start up a company, it goes bust. Too bad. Start up another one. Keep trying. Uh, it's not viewed as being something that you want to spare uh, businesses and investors from, but but just more part of the natural thing. Whereas 
I do, you know, when I watch a lot of what's going on in the news business, I, I must say something has changed because if you go back to the days of the Kent Commission in the 1980s, the Kent Commission recommended that businesses be subsidized uh, to, I think it was to produce more foreign news in that, in that day and age. And the publishers, to their enormous credit, maybe the only Canadian industry in history that turned down uh, government favors, but they rose as one and said, we don't want any of you of your of your money. Get, get away from us. Uh, and so the publishers, unfortunately, have, have changed their their hue in that regard. Um, I think also that there's the flip side of that is there's more uh, obvious. I mean, you have such scale and such. Uh, critical mass in the United States that you 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 see uh, the emergence of alternatives much quicker and of new models and new businesses and new startups. Uh, they are happening in Canada too. I think people need to pay more attention to this. Uh, you know, people look around, they say, oh, you know, the local news, the traditional local newspaper is is in trouble, may go under. Therefore, nothing else can possibly replace it. That nothing moves unless government wills it to do, which is just basically superstition. It's not actually, be, uh, um, um, you know, supported by actual experience or logic. Uh, um, but but the, in the United States, they can just see a little more immediate and quick examples of, of startups. And you've got the phenomenon in the United States that I think is going to spread elsewhere and is spreading elsewhere. Uh, in a way, it's kind of imitating what the globe did uh, uh, 40, 50 years ago, when it moved from being uh, a, a mass market paper in a small market in, in, in Toronto only, to being a upper crust newspaper that, that covered a large geographic area. And I think you're going to see, and you are seeing the New York Times's and the, the Guardian's and these papers um, spreading and uh, becoming interna- much more international brands uh, in essentially an analogous uh, uh, strategy. So you know all these all these reasons. You're 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 um, even though there's there seems to be more carnage in the states, more papers actually going under rather than threatening to. Uh, they seem to be having a higher tolerance of it. But you know, in 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 trying to prevent this from happening, in keeping in particular the post media um, carcass, of, of, you know, moving by administering electroshock to it every now and then. Uh, uh, I think we're just we're just preventing needed change. Uh, I don't want to single out post media, except that they're you know they're so such a huge uh, uh, giant uh, uh, obstructing in many ways the needed adjustment in the industry. I've talked to people who've been interested in starting up uh, projects that were conditional on post media collapsing because it occupies so much market space, it occupies so much capital and labor. Uh, that it makes it harder for anybody else to 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 get going, and you know. But the notion to come back to sort of this question or the previous question, the notion that you hear that you seem to hear over and over from people that you know there are willing readers out there who would like to read the news, but they just won't be served unless the government does it. That that nobody will will take it into their heads that aha, here's a business opportunity. Uh, in 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 these people are sitting there with wads of cash in their hands, ready to pay for news, but nobody will think it and come take it into their heads to, to serve it to them. I just think is is bankrupt. It just does not accord with logic or common sense or actual human experience. Uh, granted, as I say, we're having to to uh, uh, um, get them used to the idea of paying something close to the full shot, 
but you know, I, I just don't see any reason why that would not happen. I don't want to sound like I'm Pollyanna-ish about this. It, quite the contrary. It's, it's actually look at the actual history, that, which is that only a minority of people have ever wanted to read anything. And only a minority of them have ever wanted to read anything good. But that minority of a minority has always existed and always will exist. Uh, so, so the notion that they would be out there and that nobody would, would take it into their head to serve them, I just think is bunkum. I will resist the temptation, Andrew, to ask you a set of broader questions about the Canadian political economy tendency towards the subsidization of business. That'll be something we have to have you back on in, in 2024. Well, part of it, if you don't mind me just jumping in, because I think this is on topic, because I think it, 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 our past also tells us something about our future. We have also more experience of subsidized news gathering in this country, with the CBC in particular, and with the you know the the the, the TV networks generally may not be getting specific money for subsidy for for news, but they've always benefited from one way or another from some kind of subsidy or cross subsidy, et cetera. Uh, um, so that has maybe made us more conditioned towards it. And I one of the consequences that I greatly fear from subsidy is that it will acclimatize us further, not just to subsidy in the news business, although it will certainly do that and has done that. A few years ago, it was still controversial in our business, and it's become less and less controversial as people have gotten more and more acclimatized to it and accustomed to it. And programs that were set up to supposedly to be temporary stopgaps are becoming more permanent and larger. And, and our response to that as an industry has just been to simply eat it up and, and ask for more. And, but it's also, I think, you know, it, it, in the short run, it puts you in a conflict of interest, to say the least, not just in terms of covering uh, the politicians who are providing us with the funding, uh, and we can come into that about the, the, the real or perceived biases that come from that, but more generally, it, 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 you know, how do you make a case against bailing out another industry if your industry has been, has been bailed out? I mean, you can, but it, you're going to look more and more hypocritical. And of course, the real question is, over time, is it even going to occur to anybody? Uh, or is the, is the natural selection uh, of the industry and of the people in it going to be more and more towards thinking, well, subsidize, subsidizing industry is a, is a good thing for government to do. And it's only a question of which industries you subsidize and, of course, which players you subsidize within each industry. And that's the only real public policy question. Uh, so I think you're already seeing uh, we're taking a massive hit in terms of our credibility that it's become an absolute common currency to say, oh, you people are just saying X or Y because you're hoping to get a subsidy from the government. Um, I'm not looking forward at all to the next election where one party will be foursquare in favor of all these subsidies and another party will see how, how robust the conservatives are in their critique of it. They're certainly against funding the CBC, but I'll be interested to see whether Pierre Poilievre is as firm in opposing a private media subsidy, and if he is, uh, you know, how good are we going to be at covering that? Uh, so the, 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 there's the perception of bias. There's, to some extent, the danger of the reality of bias. And of course, the the, the overarching thing is, it's not going to solve our problem. All it does is tell us go back to sleep. Everything's fine. Ottawa will will bail you out. You don't need to make hard choices or or big adjustments or take big risks or go out of business and start again in a new model, or any of the things that are, are actually going to be uh, the future of the industry, if there's going to be a future of the industry, 
uh, uh, you can just carry on as you did before. And, and that's, that's the worst possible outcome. So there's a bunch of different reasons why I'm concerned about it. Maybe, you know, I'm not sure whether you wanted to ask that at this point in the interview, but... Uh, I was, in fact, going to ask what your principal concerns are, but I think you've done a pretty good job of outlining them there. It leads to the question, how would you respond, Andrew, to critics who say that in the absence of some transitory support, we'll see a marked decline in high-quality journalism and the result will be that the gap in the market is filled by outlets or platforms that don't abide by journalistic principles, that seek to affirm or galvanize sources of division, and that the net effect is that our civic and democratic life is undermined. Are you not concerned about those possible developments, or do you think that the consequences of state intervention are worse, or are you just ultimately more confident that markets are going to sort out the future of news? Well, the first point is we shouldn't exaggerate the degree to which high-quality news uh, has ever been really part of the equation. Um, people get, again, very highfalutin about, you know, democracy depends on us and a, and a, a well-read public. And the public has never been well-read, most of them. Uh, they, they either didn't read or they read really crappy tablets. Uh, uh, so it's always ever, again, always only ever been a, a minority question. Um I get really queasy uh, if, you know, the implication of that thing is that uh, somebody somewhere is going to decide what the high quality news is that's going to be the recipient of the subsidy, because that's inevitable. You, you can't get away from that unless you give money to everybody. Uh, and, and you can't give money to everybody because in this day and age, everybody is a, can claim to be a news outlet, right? Anybody can start up a website and say, I'm a newspaper. And, and nobody is, should be in the position of, deciding officially whether that's true or not. And unfortunately, that's where we've gone now with these qualifying Canadian news organization designations. Uh, um, because inevitably, once you get into choosing sort of vertically, you're also choosing horizontally. Once you decide I'm, I'm subsidizing quality news, then, you know, part of your definition of quality is, is inevitably going to be where are you on the, on the political spectrum? And I don't mean in a right-left sense, but on on an extreme moderate sense. You might you might think of yourself as being very ecumenical. You know, I'm I I don't want to skew the, the pitch on a left-right basis. I just want to exclude um, um, the, the 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 fringes. And for private organizations, that's perfectly legitimate. And in fact, one of the things we're wrestling with is we no longer have private gatekeepers. Uh, deciding to marginalize the marginalized, the, the marginal, to keep the, the Nazis and the flat earthers out of the public square. I'm not saying they did a perfect job of that. And sometimes in the past, legitimate opinions didn't get as much coverage as they should have, but they darn well kept out the Nazis and the crazies. And one of the things we're wrestling with in the world of social media is that's no longer the case. But the thing about private organizations is you have your choice whether you want to enter the public square through that portal. And if somebody's doing a bad job of it, you, you, you know, this is one of the things, again, we're wrestling with social media is to try to create more competition in the social media space uh, so we can have our choice of gatekeepers. But the last thing you want is for the government, the state, uh, to be the gatekeeper. And one of the inevitable um, implications of the subsidy model is, even if it starts off with these high-minded things, is you start making political choices. Uh, you know, I have no use whatsoever for the rebel, uh, but the notion that somebody in government is going to decide to, to, to subsidize the rebels' competitors and not the rebel really makes me un, un, unhappy and un, un, uncomfortable. And so that's part of my disagreement with the sort of quality thing. 
but look, the, 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 the best thing that can happen for the quality of newspapers is to allow the process to, 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 to play out of, of this, the sort of Oregon trek we're all making uh, uh, to, to the reader pay model. It's not that the industry is collapsing. It's that the industry is going through a transition, a huge historic transition. Now, not a lot of people survive the Oregon trek. So, you know, th th there's going to be probably fewer of us employed, at least in recognizably general interest newspaper models. Uh, so one of the things we should say is we have no idea what the what the model is going to look like in the future, whether it, it, it may well be the case that the sort of department store model of newspapers, where you had a, a little bit of something for everybody, and it was sort of a coalition of different reader groups, that may be on the way out. I don't know. Uh, uh, but it may be that we're going to all be much more grazers in the future and we'll get a little bit of news from one spot and another bit of news from another spot. There'll be much more specialized types of boutiques. So we have to be alert to that possibility. But certainly if, if you're getting to a reader pay model, I look at the TV industry and I think it's a really interesting example of where we could be going. People sometimes say TV has never been worse and they say it's never been better. So the worst part is we've never, you know, all these terrible reality shows and game shows and all these kinds of wastes of time. Uh, but there's also at the same time, this golden age of, you know, the Sopranos and the wire and all these amazing shows. And what's the difference between which kind of t TV shows do you see where the bad stuff is all on free TV, all on traditional TV networks. And the good stuff is all on pay because it turns out a paying audience is a more discerning and demanding audience. They want their money's worth. Uh, and if that's our future, and I think there's lots of reasons to, to think that that's the, the, the model of the future, well, that's great. That means you're writing for readers that really care about what you're writing about and are going to pay it close attention. And, and every writer's dream is to have readers who are as committed to their content as they are. And as I may have suggested, that's not necessarily always the case. So the final point is nobody knows. Nobody knows what the future of the industry is going to be. Nobody knows what kinds of technological changes are going to come along that will, again, revolutionize everything. In terms of, I mean, including things like how, do the, how does the tablet computer format evolve? Does it become thinner and lighter and with longer battery life and more like newspapers, more like paper? And how does that change the way people read the, the newspaper? I think that's a critical factor and has been a critical factor in how things have evolved in the last few years. Part of the difficulties we were going through, I think, uh, in the early days of the internet was that it took so long to load pages. And part of the reason why people glommed onto things like Google News and aggregators was it was a shortcut. It was take me straight to the page the, that I know I'm going to be interested in because I can't bear to try to browse through these awful websites that the newspapers have set up. Because the pages are full of ads and goo-gahs and, and I can't read them anyway. Uh, and so people, you know, entrepreneurs have been providing people all kinds of ways to deal with this. That, that these, these readability things like, like uh, Pocket or Instapaper. What is that? That's because the newspapers and the magazines are making their pages so unreadable that people have come up with products that will take all that cruft and crap out of there so you can actually read the pages again. But what you find even with today's tablets, today's primitive tablets and apps, is the pages load instantaneously. And you find yourself browsing through a single product again, a single paper, a single magazine again, the way you used to. 
and you stop at an article if it looks really interesting and you read it, but then you, you, all you have to do is just flip your finger and you're on to the next one. Well, imagine if they get so much better that you're not worrying about battery life and you can fold them and, and, and make them larger and you can get much more interesting layout possibilities the way we used to with the old papers. Uh, so all these things, the only reason I raise all that is all of this is ent entirely unpredictable. Nobody could have predicted the iPhone would have the impact it did 20 years ago. Nobody would have guessed. I don't think the iPhone had, had come out 20 years ago. So given that inherent unpredictability, to be betting everything on propping up uh, the existing franchises just seems to me to be ludicrous. So I turn this argument around on people when people say, well, you know, how do we know where where news is going to come from and, and how do we know we're going to get good quality news? We don't, but all the more reason not to be placing these big bets. Let the process unfold. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be pleasant for a lot of people, but it's the only way we're going to get to the other side. I was going to wrap up with a crystal ball question, and uh, but I will resist the temptation in light of your thoughtful response and instead ask a final question. In light of all of that, Andrew, are you optimistic about the future of journalism in Canada? I absolutely am. I see people starting up things now all the time. Uh, uh, local news organizations uh, uh, stimulating commentary sites like The Hub. Uh, uh, you know, the, there's there's lots going on and, and we, we need to let it go on uh, uh, um, and get out of the way of it and, and celebrate it when we see it and, you know, go out and support it with your, your own hard-earned dollars, absolutely. Uh, but do it because uh, they're providing you with interesting reading, not out of out of uh, uh, any sense of duty. Uh, um, you know, let's let's have fun with this. I know it's tough. It's a tough industry and it's a tough industry to be in right now. Uh, but there's good things happening at the same time. Uh, and the only way we're ever going to make the, the, the bad times uh, go past is if we if we rediscover the fun of reading and the fun of writing and, and, and put out good writing that attracts readers and makes readers interested and stimulated. Uh, um, the, the, the only long run future for the industry is with willing, paying readers. And, and the sooner we get that through our heads and, and focus on the reader, the faster we'll get through this very difficult transition we're going through. That's an outstanding way to wrap up today's conversation. Andrew Coyne, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Hub Dialogues featuring content for our Future of News series. For more on the series, go to our website, www.thehub.ca. This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous and ongoing support of the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Meta is a contributor to the Hub's Future of News series. We thank them for their ongoing support. Today's program host was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. The Hub Dialogues are produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.